So, you know, I like having structure, and for me, rules or structure has always been kind of a helpful guideline. I, I wouldn't say I've necessarily been, oh, that's, I kind of have been, actually. So, I've kind of been a big rules person. I guess part of the reason is I'm trying to move away from that, but I still have that, I just, ah, oh, need some structure, and I just get anxious if I don't have something to grab onto. Can you tell I'm not, I'm really enjoying my freedom of here of no microphone. Um, so when I was growing up, rules were a big thing in my life. And especially growing up religiously, I had a lot of rules. And when I was in college, I went to a Bible college, we had a handbook full of rules. So we had rules from everything to uh, behavioral rules to dress rules from uh, like, for instance, uh, I had to wear a tie every day to class, and I kind of miss wearing a tie, honestly. Um, I have, like, my closet still. It's just full of dress shirts and ties from college and my first church job. So it, I have this, like, huge check section in my closet, just a waste right now. We, were, we had rules about what forms of entertainment we're allowed to be participate in. So, for instance, we're a lot, not allowed to go to the movie theaters. Did you have the same thing? Yeah. So no movie theaters were not allowed. And then the obvious, well, of course, growing up uh, in Bible college, there were no, you were not supposed to show any sign of uh, outward affection towards a person. So we had a lot of rules. And in some ways, and I emphasize the word some, I thrived in those rules. I mean, it was easy for me to look up in the handbook and see if I had broken a rule. And if I hadn't broken a rule, then I, I guess I was good. I was being a good Christian, so to speak. And better than that, there were all these Bible verses that backed up these rules to kind of say like, hey, this is why this rule's in place. This is why you should wear a tie. I don't remember what the Bible verse was, but there was some Bible verse that said like why I should wear a tie every day to class and then to church on Sundays. Um, you know, there's a, uh, about why I should not kiss my girlfriend, why I shouldn't like, uh, go to the movie theaters. So there's all these rules, and, and as I think back, they were pretty funny, pretty silly, especially I think about the rules against you know, displays of affection. Because um, well, we're all, most of us are adults here. We've been to college, or you know, we, we understand college co-eds are college co-eds, right? I'll leave it at that. Um, so, you know, college co-eds are college co-eds, but there was also these rules, right? Very strict rules about how we could engage one another in, in public and in private. Um, so we're, you know, there were the kids who got caught in Walmart buying condoms, but, you know, they were the stupid kids who were not smart enough to, to do it. Um, but most of us, found other ways to go around the rules in less obvious ways, I guess. So I'm not sure if it's still this way, but when I was growing up, when Karina and I were growing up, we've known each other for a while, uh, like 20 years ago. Um, I think if you could go back in time 20 years ago, again, I don't know if it's still this way today, and spend time with a group of conservative Christian teenagers, tickle fights were a huge deal. Can I get some? Oh, we got some appreciation for tickle fights. Um, 
And it, it's bizarre in retrospect because, like, you know, you weren't really supposed to touch a person of the opposite sex. Um, and again, I, I understand I'm being heteronormative here, but again, context, right? Um, so you weren't, you weren't supposed to touch someone of the opposite sex, but somehow tickling was okay. Like, I could, I could tickle someone, and like, it was, it was, it was somehow understood as okay. And um, I have a, Ethan's going to dial up a picture for me. Uh, this is about roughly uh, 15, 16 years ago. Um, Karina and I, look at my hair. You know, I have awesome hair. I mean, so that was, that was probably 2002-ish, I'm guessing. 2001. So Karina and I, we'd, we were, we've known each other since high school, and we obviously run in the same social circles. And this is about time, this is about after the time we started, you know, having feelings for each other. But we had this group of friends, and somehow, um, whenever we'd get together uh, at, our, at our, someone's house, we'd end up in these just humongous tickle fights. Like, we'd just be on the floor, all over each other wrestling, like, just tickling each other, you know, like the ribs, the, the knees, the feet, um, you know, whatever was fair game. And um, the moment that I knew, and it was obvious to everyone else, that I had feelings for Karina is because we were in the, I don't know if you remember this, it was in my parents' basement, and we were on their couch, and I think Brandon or somebody had you like pinned down, and I was supposed to go in and tickle you in the ribs. And I said I took a pillow and like mashed it into her ribs because like I liked Karina, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't supposed to touch someone I liked. So it was obvious, it was obvious that I had to crush on Trina, and thankfully um, I didn't scare her off. But, you know, so I, those were the, the rules were, and I knew, like, I was supposed to abide by these rules. And uh, what's interesting, sad, I would think, is that, you know, this, this emphasis on systematizing or structuring Christianity into these neat and tidy um, you know, behaviors isn't something that's entirely new. For a couple hundred years or so, Christianity has really been trying to systematize or structure uh, what it means to be a Christian. Historically, it's called systematic theology, and uh, theology is the broad term used to to talk about the study of God and, and broadly Christianity or even religion. So, um, systematic theology is about trying to arrange these thoughts and beliefs of Christianity into like these, these um, what's the word? Um, you know, these, these individual parts into a self-consistent whole. So, of course, unsurprisingly, when I was in, in Bible college, we had a, a book called a Systematic Theology Book. You did too, right, Victoria? I wonder who your author was. Um, I don't remember who the author was, but anyway, I got rid of that book a long time ago, I think. Um, I, I, you know, I actually might still have that one book. I, I talked last week about some books I've kept on to. Uh, but this book, again, was, was a systematic theology of what it meant, according to this author, to be a good Christian. And it neatly laid out in systematic form everything that I needed to know, so to speak, to be a good Christian. So in, in many ways, it made life pretty simple. Like, if something ran counter to the things laid out in this book, like, I knew it was wrong. Just 
simple. I remember once um, doing some reading in the library in college, and it was from some some different perspective theological book. And I remember like my my professor just happened to run to walk by, or I saw him after class, and I I made a joke about this other book that I read that was, God forbid, had a different perspective on you know the Bible and and God. And so it, it made life kind of simple and, and conveniently. The churches I went to also kind of operated in a similar fashion. Like they didn't—I <laughs> don't. Maybe some of you experienced this. They didn't have a—they um, didn't have a, a book that they handed you, but they usually had a page, or sometimes even a few pages that laid out their beliefs and their doctrines that they adhered to and expected you to adhere to if you're going to become a member or participate in that church. Um, so it's interesting and. And as I've talked to some of you, um, I know many of you have had past experiences, you know, stories of feeling obviously pressure and, and expected to, maybe not pressure, but just that was just the expectation to adhere to this church's kind of list of beliefs. And 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 if you didn't, maybe maybe you could come, but you were kind of treated as a second class citizen. So. You know, so whether it be you know this need to to either to be in leadership or to become a member or maybe to get married, you had to sign on to this 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 list of rules, so to speak. You know, many churches have made it abundantly clear that our status as a Christian is dependent on our willingness to to sign on the dotted line, if you will, of whatever their list of beliefs is. That that's what it means. To be a Christian, and in this kind of idea of you know signing on the dotted line or adhering to adhering to a proposition of beliefs has become so dominant that that's what we think of as when we think of Christianity. Like it means I believe this and I I believe this and I believe that. But here's the thing: I don't think that's what Jesus intended. Today we're wrapping up our Upside Down series, which Ethan Oth got our image for. And we've been looking at several passages from the Bible in which Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is basically a term that Jesus used to describe how things would be different if God were in charge. And often these things stood in sharp contrast to the prevailing kingdom of his day, the the I can never say this, the empire of Rome. So what's interesting, though, as Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he kind of talked about the kingdom of God as being something in the future, but also something we could live into in some ways right here in the now. And as Jesus went around talking about this kingdom of God, those in power found him to be quite disturbing. They were offended by what he had to say because it directly challenged their ways of doing things. So those in position of power were often trying to trip Jesus up to make him sound stupid, to make him sound foolish, and to make him look bad. Yet as the Bible describes throughout the Gospels, um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, it seems, was always ready for them instead, outsmarting them. So it's in one of these instances where Jesus is having a back and forth with some of the elites, and a, a scribe or an interpreter 
comes up to Jesus and, and joins in the conversation and hears Jesus responding intelligently to some of this conversation, this back and forth. And um, the interpreter decides to ask Jesus his own question. Here, let's, let's read the story. Um, I kind of cheated this morning, so I wouldn't have to thrum through my Bible. But if you'd like to join me, we're reading from Mark chapter 12, um, starting in verse 28. So I've kind of cheated just to make my life easier. And I think we have it on the screen there if you'd like to follow along. Starting in verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any questions. So it's kind of interesting what happens here. This scribe or this interpreter decides to ask Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Again, it's not entirely clear if he was trying to outsmart Jesus or make, or was just intelligently curious, right? Yet, even if it was meant to be an honest question, it was not an easy question because Jewish law is, we think of Jewish law as conveniently as, or normally as the Ten Commandments, but really Jewish law had a whole host of commandments, all of which they understood to be very important for their life and their faith and all have come from God. So, so to say that, to ask Jesus, like, what's the most important would have been a tricky question for Jesus to answer. Um, but again, Jesus answers wisely and says, it all comes down to loving God and loving your neighbor, and all the commandments can be summed up into these two things. Again, the scribe is impressed and says, teacher, I agree, this is more important than all other religious practices. Jesus, seeing the scribe, responds wisely, says to the scribe, interestingly, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, it's kind of a confusing answer from Jesus. I mean, didn't the scribe say exactly the right thing, like love God, love neighbor? What's, what's he lacking? Here's the thing. I think according to Jesus, the kingdom of God wasn't about agreeing on the right answers. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is not about agreeing on the right answers. Instead, it was about living, loving, and doing. Yeah, the scribe may have been able to say the right thing, even think the right thing, 
but it doesn't seem like he was doing the right thing. And for Jesus, that seems to be what matters in the end. In Since I've used some big words this morning, in, in Christian history and in theology and study of which, they've used this term orthodoxy. And orthodoxy generally refers to right beliefs. If you believe the right thing, you are considered orthodox or an orthodox Christian. As things have, as we've come to have a fuller understanding, or let me say it this way, others have begun using the word orthopraxy, which means right practice. So right belief versus right practice. And the reason others have begun using the word right practice is because we believe in, in seeing the ways of Jesus. Jesus was far more concerned with right practice than with right belief. And, and it's interesting, Jesus' brother James, who wrote the book of James, said, wrote in, in the book of James, I have it on there, um, actually I don't think I have it, but he wrote, you believe in God? That's great. So do the demons. That's what James wrote. In other words, it's not just about talking the talk, it's about walking the walk. Because in the end, all that the rules have ever done, rules in general, right? All that rules, and especially rules of faith, ever do is describe who is in and who's out, the insiders and the outsiders, the true believers and the heretics. Chances are, if you're here this morning, you've probably been described at one point in your life as someone on the outside. Someone who fell beyond the walls or the borders of faith. At least as that community of faith described it. The thing is, though, and this is something that we feel strongly about here at Mission Gathering, is that Jesus didn't put up those walls. He didn't put up those borders of faith. He didn't put up those rules. He encouraged people to live out, to love, and to live as he was doing. You know, we're a, we're a new church. We're only this is our sixth week in existence, meeting on Sunday. If you're new here this morning, six weeks. Hard to believe it's been that long. Even feels like a lot longer in some ways. Uh, but as I've gone around, gone around telling people about this, you know, sometimes I've heard. Well, sounds like you're a church that doesn't believe anything. And I would say to that, they're missing the point, I guess. Because what we believe, if I can say that terminology, is that you don't have to believe the right thing. And really it goes back to our roots, our tradition that we come from, in a, in a tradition called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ that has historically been understood as non-creedal. And non-creedal means you don't have to ascribe to a creed or a statement of belief. So that means we don't have a doctrine or dogma or statement of belief that we've asked people to adhere to 
And historically, churches in our tradition have said we follow no creed but Christ. And our second kind of rule like that is that we believe that everyone is welcome at God's table. Because again, when, when churches like ours 200 years ago were getting started, there was this thing that you could only partake in communion if you were a member of that church or you ascribed to certain rules. And believers got together, Christians got together a long time ago, and they said, wait a minute, this is off. Like, like we should just be following Jesus, and we should be including everyone at Christ's meal. So, I say this to people, and I say, I, I guess I say it in this way. It's not that we, we don't believe anything. It's that we believe that it's about following the ways of Jesus, and we welcome you to journey with us in our faith to follow after Jesus' ways. And uh, it's who we really want to try to live into and be. And because of that, this church is not going to be about getting you to say the right answers or think the right things. Rather, this, is, this church is about encouraging you and equipping you to live out your faith and to live and love and do as Jesus would do. So that means I'm never going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to sign on to a statement of beliefs. I'm not going to ask you to recite a dogma. I'm not going to require you to agree to a doctrine. I am going to ask you, though, I'm going to ask you to follow in the ways of Jesus and join me in doing so because I believe that's what Jesus called us to do, to follow his ways. And more so, if I can be real, I'm going to ask you to invite others to join with us in following the way of Jesus because that's what Jesus asked of his disciples, to go out and make more disciples, to make more followers of Jesus. Because truthfully, I have a big dream for this church. And while we meet here in this, this cafeteria, I also notice that there's these walls behind us that perhaps you noticed. And they, they expand out. And behind us is a gymnasium. So I, I can imagine chairs going all the way back and people coming in from different entrances, having more coffee, having have more snacks, because people hearing and responding to the welcome and the good news of God's love and welcome and the call to follow Jesus, not, not, to, a, not to sign on to a statement of faith, but to follow Jesus and to follow the ways of Jesus. So this morning, I want you to imagine, imagine what we could do together. Imagine what this place could become. A place where outsiders are insiders. A place where people practice what they preach. A place where people are loved as Jesus loved. Well, that would be something. The good news is that we can make this a reality. Together we can. But again, there is one thing we more need of. People. So this morning I want to ask you and to say I need your help to make that a reality. 
to, to make the reality what I believe God is calling this place to be. So if you want a place where outsiders are insiders, if you want a place where people practice what they preach, if you want a place that loves as Jesus loved, think of someone this week that you can invite to be a part of this. And encourage them to join us as we seek to follow the ways of Jesus in living, loving, and doing. So join with me this morning as we seek to follow Jesus, follow God's ways, and encourage and share this good news.